This is Matt. I'm the lead pastor at Westminster Baptist Church. Thanks for engaging God's word with us. My prayer for you is that this would be supplemental to your discipleship journey. Uh, If we can connect you with a local church or discipleship group, uh, please contact us at info at discoverwbc.com. Amen. Well, again, we're going to be in Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. I hope you're able to walk away knowing the elders are enlisted to build and rebuild healthy churches through right theology and right practice. Or another way to say that would be to believe right, live right, and protect those two truths. Over the next few Sundays, I'm going to look at the biblical call of elders uh, to engage wrong theology in church, specifically in the church and with its leadership. Now, I've broken down uh, what I, I think we could identify as three different false gospels that are preached throughout the community uh, and churches throughout the community. These three gospels uh, are false and are uh, aligning people to something that is not going to bring about the salvation that God has promised in His Word. And we are called to, as leaders in the church and as Christians in the church in general, to stand up to empty talk and deception. Titus chapter 1, 10 through 16 says, empty talk and deception, but we have to ask ourselves, what is the empty talk and deception in modern-day Carroll County that we face ourselves uh, with and uh, engage with on an everyday basis? For the Cretans, it was Jewish myths and alternate gospels about legalism, but most false preachers today aren't preaching about Judaism or legalism. Those are pretty easily identified. But today, false preaching sounds something like this. Faith, if it's good enough, will bless your American dream. That's the prosperity gospel. Another false gospel is that right politics will restore Christ to America. It's nationalism. Another false gospel is that sexual freedom leads to internal joy. That's the gospel of self. It came from the sexual revolution in the 60s and 70s. So I asked a few of my best friends who are in ministry, what they believed was the most prominent false gospels that we face today. Brandon Johnson, who's the director of the state of Maryland, FCA, one of my best friends said, to be your own God, to make your own rules for life, that pride is the recipe for disaster that our country and our people have affixed itself to, and that creating your own truth and what is right based on your truth for everyone else has led to false gospel. Jonna, who's a pastor Uh, or he is the pastor of Crossroads Eldersburg, and one of my best friends said, it's not wrong to hope Christian principles are in the nation's practices, but the issue is when we put our hope in the nation to bring us what only Christ can. It is my responsibility and the responsibility of those who have been called to lead churches throughout this community and the world to preach Christ and to preach Him crucified. We don't preach health, wealth, and prosperity. We don't preach America's health, wealth, and prosperity. And we don't preach the sexual revolution so that we blend with culture and don't get canceled. Instead, we preach the truth of the gospel from God's word. It's what we've been called to, and it's what we will do. That truth is going to impact, biblical truth is going to impact every area of your life, but no area of your life is going to impact biblical truth. Your life will change, but truth will not. God's word endures forever. Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. For there are many rebellious people full of empty talk and deception, especially those from the circumcision party. 
It is necessary to silence them. They are ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. One of their very own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true for this reason. Rebuke them sharply so they may be sound in the faith and may not pay attention to Jewish myths and the commands of people who reject the truth. To the pure, everything is pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and conscience are defiled. They claim to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Simple summary of this passage. Engage divisive leaders and engage divisive immoral leaders. It's pretty simple. Paul is called Titus to engage divisive leaders and to engage immoral leaders. In verse 10, it says it like this, for there are many rebellious people, specifically those who have followed after these Christian leaders and churches that have led them astray by false gospels. It says in the passage, they are full of empty talk and deception. That phrase, empty talk and deception, was uh, in, in uh, their day something like uh, babbling around without knowing what you're talking about, using uh, words that have no meaning. Uh, leading people by talking a long time uh, just to get people to listen to you or being eloquent with your speech. So there were people that were full of empty talk that were deceiving people and leading them away, and specifically from the circumcision party, which were Jews uh, who uh, forced Christians who were not Jewish to be circumcised as if it was a law for them to be saved. This was, for Paul, deception. And so we, as we engage our culture, can identify empty talk and deception, babbling around about things that aren't true and deceiving people towards things that aren't true. Now, their problem specifically in their, in, in their culture was that they were telling people uh, to obey laws, yet they weren't obeying them. That's legalism. The other thing that was the, uh, one of the other biggest issues that we faced was they were telling people false gospels and causing to them to obey that. So you see the two scenarios. One, you're telling them legal, uh, laws and not following it. And the second one is you're telling them false laws and following it. Both of those are bad situations for the church and for your family. Now, nobody wants this. We can talk about this in church all day long, but you don't actually want this for your family. You don't want it for your kids. It's not like you're going around as parents and telling your kids uh, false things and like, man, I really hope they do that. Like, hey, if there's a fire in the house, I really hope you'll just run straight into it. Nobody's dumb enough. I mean, we're not going to say that, right? It's not practices we abide by in our homes, right? So why would we in the church be hesitant to tell people truth? We're not going to preach false uh, 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 laws and hope that people obey them. We're not going to tell our kids to lie, I hope. We're training them to tr- in truth. So why would the church not be a place that we are okay with speaking truth? We have to speak truth and not back down. Verse 11. It is necessary to silence them. They are ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. One uh, theologian would call it like this. He'd say, hey, I can summarize this in two words, private jet. I was like, oh man, <laughs> Whew, that's harsh. Uh, theologians who, who own their own private jets or pastors who own their private jets, that's a dangerous thing right there. Uh, but the key is he was identifying people who were using empty talk and deception to get money dishonestly. So Paul says to Titus, silence them. And you might go, man, that's, that's pretty harsh. What does it mean to silence them? Well, it doesn't mean literally to cause them not to be able to speak. What it means is to give truth that they might not want to speak lies. 
So you see it throughout this, uh, this book is that Paul wants Titus to speak truth so that the, the lies are then tra- transformed into truth. And so people who once were speaking lies are now speaking truth. It has silenced their lie and is promoting and preaching truth. That's the end game. It's the goal of what Paul wants for Titus and for those in Crete to be preaching the gospel. And it's consistent. This isn't the only time Paul says something like silence or or rebuke or reject. He's going to say that throughout Titus. But he also says in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 13, when he says, uh, or 12 through 13, For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. That is, inside. So we are called as brothers and sisters in Christ and as leaders of the church to engage those who are within the church to ensure that there's right theology and right practice. It's our responsibility. The church winds up judging those who are outside and being passive within, silent within, quiet within, not talking about our own struggles. What that leads to is we judge everyone else telling what they do, what they ought to do, and within the church we don't do what we ought to do. That causes hypocrisy, slanders Christ's name in the community, and ultimately we get to the end of the day and we're like, man, what did we preach? All we preached was legalism to the world and salvation to the church. It's a false gospel that we have to be careful about. Christ has called us to, to, to uh, uh, be careful with what we speak to one another, be, be, be uh, smart about how we speak to one another. With theology and with practice, we need to be careful how we share things. So 1 Corinthians 5 reinforces this. Titus uh, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 12. One of their very own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This is a quote from Epimenides. He's a prophet, teacher, uh, from 600 BC, and he uh, he was like well known, uh, worshipped by the Cretans. They they mean they loved this dude. They sacrificed to him, and they thought he was like uh, they thought he was almost like a miracle worker because they thought he lived like something like 200 years. He slept for like 54. They said of those years, um, they they just thought they thought this guy was really special, and so for him to write to them, they worshipped him. He writes to them. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Paul takes that and quotes someone that they love to show them, hey, this is, this is not just what I'm saying. This is what people whom you love are saying about you. And specifically not to all Cretans, because it would be wrong for me to say, or Paul to say something like, hey, everyone in Carroll County is uh, always liars, evil beasts, and uh, lazy gluttons. Right? Because not everybody in Carroll County is uh, all of those things at all times. But rather what Paul is saying to Titus is there are leaders in the church that are lying and and using people in the church and not preaching the gospel and being lazy, gluttons, and indulging in the things of this world, and you need to call them out. So he's specifically talking to the church leaders. An ancient historian reinforces this, and Plato and Aristotle talk about Epimenides and talk about the Cretans as well, but Polybius says this. He says it's almost impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous and public policy more unjust than in Crete. Now you think about it. Just take a pause and look at Scripture and looking at our day, what God has said to them and for us, we we see that personal conduct is rough, public policy is rough. Man, Today, I have so many people that constantly bring up, man, but do you see what this world is doing? Do you see where our nation is headed? Do you see where politics are? And I'm like, man, Christ has seen it forever. And that's what he came into. We have to remind ourselves, in Nigeria, right now, 4,000 Christians have been killed this year for their faith. 
Thousands more children and women have been taken as slaves in Nigeria right now. Yes, we face persecution in some capacity in America. Yes, we face public policy that is not biblical. We face personal conduct that is not biblical in America today. But don't think that when Paul wrote to Titus to stand firm in these truths, that he was speaking to a culture that was perfect, or that he idealized a culture that was perfect. Yes, we face a difficult culture. Stand firm in the gospel. Yes, it's difficult out there. Yes, there's persecution potentially. Stand firm. Verse uh, 13 and 14 says this. This testimony is true, talking about Epimenides. For this reason, rebuke them sharply, so that they may be sound in the faith and may not pay attention to Jewish myths and the commands of people who reject the truth. Now, I I want you to see something clear here. Rebuke them sharply is what it says it is. Rebuke them sharply. There's nothing behind that. There's no way to make that more, a little bit more passive or toned down. Paul literally means if there's Christian leaders who have raised up and said that they are the example of Christian life and the example of Christian theology, and those leaders are not embodying the gospel and preaching the gospel, you ought to rebuke them sharply. Now, it's somewhat specified for those who have raised up as Christian leaders, but when he says rebuke them sharply, he means it. In 1 Corinthians, he tells uh, the church at Corinth, he says to them specifically, I hope that I don't have to come and rebuke you sharply. Because see, what he is essentially saying is, if you don't get your act together, I'm going to come talk to you. And I think we need to be clear about this, because the, the, world, the world is watching the church embody the gospel And we can either slander Christ's name by preaching the truth and not living it, or we can preach the truth and live it. And if we're going to preach the truth and live it, then we need to hold each other accountable to preach the truth and hold each other accountable to live the truth. And so that's what Paul is telling Titus to do. Rebuke them sharply that they might preach it and live it according to what he's given them. Now, I want you to, man, this is so important. The goal of confrontation and the goal of rebuking and silencing always has to be restoration. Biblically, that's what it is. It's restoration. The whole way through, when you look at Matthew, and you see the biblical mandate for how you do confrontation, when you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and you see that biblical mandate for how you do confrontation, all of them are the same. The goal is restoration through confrontation. So if your heart is not oriented towards restoration of the other person, you need to take a pause, step back, recenter your heart, pray to the Lord, ask Him to cause in your heart a desire for that individual to come to a closer faith in Jesus Christ. So rebuke is about restoration, that they may be sound in the faith. And that faith is not personal faith, it's a global faith. When it says faith right there, what it means is the, uh, the Christian beliefs, doctrine, theology, practice. So the idea is that they need to come into that true uh, theology and practice that God has given them to live within. Verse 15. To the pure, everything is pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and conscience are defiled. They claim to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Man. I hope and pray that no church in Carroll County and specifically this church and our leaders, will never be identified as detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. But as we've talked about before, the way that happens is verse 15. 
When you allow defiled things to go into your mind, unbelieving things to go into your mind, put those on repeat, and saturate your mind with false gospels like the prosperity gospel, uh, like Christian nationalism, and like uh, the personal gospel. When you allow those things to saturate your mind, put them on repeat, it leads to a space where you are now defiled, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. So we have to be careful what we put into our minds. We have to be careful the theology we preach and we live every single day. Now you might be wondering, and, and it's, a great, it's a good question, I think it's got a simple answer, but you might be wondering why should we care so much about theology? You may have, been, you may have sat in this church a couple times and you'd be like, man, why does he walk verse by verse? Uh, why do they care about the theology and the uh, exegesis and the Greek and all these different things? Why do they care about these things? I have a simple answer because this has been one of the most consistent questions I've been asked throughout my ministry. And the answer is this, if it's true, it's worth knowing. If it's God's word, he's worth knowing. And if his word tells me who he is, then I want to know it. I want to know everything about it. I want to know front to back what my God has said for me to know and to believe. I have people ask me often, they'll say something like, uh, how do you know uh, what God is speaking to you? Or is God speaking to you? Why is God quiet? And all these different things. And I'm like, man, God has spoken. It's, it's not that he's like lacking in voice or lacking in words or lacking in wisdom. His word is complete and full of wisdom for life and for sa- uh, salvation. Everything you need to know apl- applicable from this truth right here. And if that's true, man, I want to know every word of it and I want to know wh- how it applies to my life because this is what my God has given me for life and salvation. And so why do we take theology seriously? Well, practically... Think about it. If you're not familiar with the word dualism, dualism is the uh, belief that uh, spirit and body are separated. The idea that came from the Gnostics uh, in the first century uh, and has carried on through dualistic teachings uh, until even today uh, would say that your body is destroyed and your spirit lives on and that's the only thing that God redeems. So if that's true, then you can do whatever you want with your body as long as you don't uh, corrupt your soul. And since Christ saves our spirit, uh, then it doesn't matter what you do with your body, which leads to licentiousness. It leads to people doing whatever they want in their own eyes. And rather than obeying an a, a eternal truth like God's word, they do whatever they want and they think is right for themselves. It's exactly what Romans chapter 1 says. We've got to be careful what we teach. Another theology that is just absolutely uh, terrible for the churches is moralistic therapeutic deism. It's rampant in churches. So you don't see like the, man, it's clear to say, okay, if a church doesn't believe in Jesus is God, like that's clearly identifiable, not going to go there, right? But it's hard to identify when a church has moralistic therapeutic deism in it. But we see it typically in our uh, kids' ministries and our student ministry student ministries. Uh, that is that uh, we, we teach children and students uh, Bible stories uh, and the Ten Commandments, and we want them to know morals to live their lives by. The problem is, I know a bunch of young adults who don't believe in God, but they know the Ten Commandments, and they know a bunch of biblical stories. They know Noah, they know Jonah, they know all these different stories, but they've never been shown Jesus Christ. They don't have a picture of what it looks like to sacrificially give yourself to one another, to love each other in obedience to Christ. They aren't taught how to pray, how to give, how to uh, 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 Lord's Supper and the baptism. They aren't taught uh, how to meditate on God's Word. They're just taught morality. As long as we have good little sinners... We're happy. As long as they're sinners who obey, we're happy. 
But what happened to Christ-centered followers who will go and do what God's called them to do and love him for the rest of their life? See, moralistic therapeutic deism may be a, a slightly big word that's theological and all those different things, but it matters. And we need to be able to identify it so that we can speak truth over it and, and, and correct it so that it might lead the little children to Christ and not keep them away from him. See, if we're going to battle false gospels and address poor theology in the church, we need to know it and we need to stand up for it. We can't be passive about it because if the Bible is true, then we ought not to be passive about it. If holiness is something we should attain through the power of the Spirit and God's Word's truth in our life, we should not be passive about these things. But we have to be careful because confrontation can be unbiblical or it can be biblical. Paul is calling Titus to confrontation. It is clear in this passage. To rebuke, to silence, and ultimately in chapter 3, to uh, reject. But confrontation can be biblical or unbiblical. Biblical confrontation has restoration as its aim. Remember this, and I've said it already today. Biblical confrontation has restoration as its aim. I hope this is true throughout your life and especially in the church. Galatians 6.1, Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit. Restoration. If someone is stuck in sin, restoration. Again, I'll take you back. What we often preach to the, to the church is, you're saved, go do whatever you want inside the church. We preach salvation in the church. Like, you're saved, your faith, you're good, go do whatever you want. It leads people into a life of debauchery. And then we look at the world and we say, you're not saved, you can't do whatever you want. What is that? It's, such, it's the false gospel. It's not even what Paul is calling them to do. We preach Christ crucified to the world and to us. And if we're stuck in sin, if someone is overtaking any wrongdoing, restore them. If someone is stuck in sin outside the church, restore them to Christ. Draw them near to Christ. Christ crucified in the church. Christ crucified outside the church. Preach Christ crucified and restore in the name of Jesus. Titus. Uh, chapter 1, verse 13 is, again, rebuke. So yes, we're going to have to have biblical confrontation, but it says, so that they may be sound in the faith. Biblical confrontation ought to always lead to restoration. Also, biblical confrontation is saturated in love. I'm going to read a passage to you, and then I want to ask you a question. John 13, 34 through 35. It says, I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have a love for one another. So here's the question. When you face confrontation with your spouse, does this just go away? This command is like, hey, you're supposed to love one another unless you're in confrontation. Right? Like your coworker that you can't stand or you're frustrated with, that you've been having debates with and you're frustrated with, does God's command to love them go away when you get in confrontation with them? No. When we silence, rebuke, and reject, is that supposed to be saturated in love? Well, if our command is to love one another, then absolutely. Saturated in love. Clear, sharp sometimes, not backing down, but love. Biblical confrontation is driven by a pure heart. It's saturated in love, and it's driven by a pure heart. If your confrontation is not driven by a pure heart, you need to go back to uh, Titus chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, and look at it again. Now, this is specifically for church leaders, but we learn from church leaders. In God's grace, you will learn from church leaders. 
and says he must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding to the faithful messages taught. Now, now get this, y'all. In Titus 1, 6 through 9, he's showing Titus how to be a faithful leader in the midst of Crete. In verses 10 through 16, he's showing Titus how to stand firm for the gospel in the midst of lies and uh, unholy living. Now, what he told him to do in verses 6 through 9, don't go away because of what he faces in 10 through 16. So if we're going to engage in confrontation, then we ought to be not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker or bully or greedy for money. But rather, to the people that we're confronting, we're supposed to be hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled. Your confrontation ought to look like Christ is in you. That doesn't mean we don't stay steadfast. It doesn't mean that we don't stay strong and firm. It doesn't mean that we don't engage in confrontation. It just means that when we do it, we don't lose the purity and the love that God has given us in our hearts. So biblical confrontation is steadfast. It doesn't change because of unbiblical pushback. It doesn't change because of potential to be canceled. It doesn't change because of where culture goes. And it doesn't change because of false gospels. It's steadfast and it's focused on God's Word. So Titus 3 verse 10. It's the end. It's what we hope never happens to anyone. But it's also what all of us desire in the end of the day. Titus 3 verse 10 says, Reject a divisive person after a first and second warning. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 12 and 13 tells us the same thing. If someone does not respond and change, they are to be uh, removed from what is uh, the local church expression of God's kingdom so that that local church is not uh, picturing Christ to the world and slandering Christ's name to the world. You see, you can't have one or the other. In this culture, we can either do one of two things. We can protect theology and, and, uh, and life, in the church, we can, we can uh, defend theology and ensure that people are following after God inside the church. Or we don't defend theology and we don't care about the way that our people in the church live. We don't engage in confrontation. We allow people to do whatever they want and Christ gets slandered in the media. Twitter looks like one pastor another after another falling away. One church after another being corrupt. It just mounts up because Why? We didn't engage in the confrontation that was necessary to engage the theology, engage the life that was unbiblical. Confrontation is hard. It's probably one of the worst things that I do. And I've been practicing it. I'm still bad at it. But the thing is, I'm called to it. And if I don't engage in it, I'm not doing exactly what God has called me to do. And I would challenge you to do the same thing with your family and with your friends and those who declare them to be brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. You have the calling to ensure right theology and right practice. I'm not telling you it's easy. But if I have an option between slandering Christ's names because of my passivity or engaging in confrontation to defend theology and life, I hope that I will stand firm for Christ every single time. So as nations rise and fall, and as people grasp for thin air for joy and meaning in the midst of a sexual revolution... And as prosperity is preached yet found wanting, Christ still remains. He is eternal, 
and from Rome in the 2nd century BC to Paris beginning in the 19th century to Berlin in the 1930s and to Washington DC in this generation and to the next great empire that will rise up, Jesus, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, which every nation will bow down to, he remains. So maybe we watch the sexual revolution continue. Maybe the dawn of technology leads to continued uh, sin struggles and temptations. Maybe legalized drugs become uh, many people's way out of depression and anxiety. But at the end of the day, when all is said and done, and when eternity comes, Jesus, our all-satisfying Savior, remains, and everything else is found wanting, and He is there, sufficient, satisfying our Savior. I think one of the most challenging ones is when your prayers don't lead to overcoming disease, when excess money and vehicles aren't enough, when success in this life fades away, remember, the suffering servant is still your Savior, and He can sympathize with all of your needs. He knows your situation. He knows where you are right now. If you have anxiety, if you have depression, if you are stuck in sin, He knows where you are. He has walked on this earth. He's engaged what you've engaged with. He knows right theology and right practice. And He will walk with you. So I hope this morning as you walk away, you will remember, believe right, live right, and protect those two truths. We engage today so many false gospels and so many deceptions and ways to, to, to lead the church astray. We need to raise up theologians, pastors, deacons, church leaders who know the Word of God. Look, man, when I, if I'd ask you this question, is Jesus God? You ought to be able to spit off some truth to say, I know why Jesus is God according to God's Word. Engaging in John 1, Colossians 1, and Hebrews 1 to be able to say, my Jesus, He is God. If we're going to engage theological dissension and deception in our world, we need to stand up as brothers and sisters in Christ, ready to believe right and live right to a world that needs to see what it looks like to be a Christian today in our culture and facing our public policies and facing personal corruption just like Crete faced. How are we going to live today? So my gospel response for you this morning, how we respond to the gospel is this. Preach God's word. Preach truth. Second, engage poor theology and engage poor lifestyles. And look, man, if you're not going to be able to engage poor theology unless you're engaging God's Word. And you're not going to be able to engage poor lifestyles unless you're following after Christ. And if you're not following after Christ, I would encourage you in this. Go back to your Savior. Remind yourself of who He is and what He has done for you. And saturate your life with His Word. And be filled with His Spirit. And be transformed in your life from where you were to where God has for you. And walk in that. And exemplify through your actions and your words the gospel message of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ lived a life that I could not live. Died the death that I should have died. And raised from the dead so that I can too. And if you've not come to that gospel message, I encourage you today to consider what Christ has done for you despite what I've done to Him. That's the gospel. Nothing else. There's no prosperity. I don't know what's going to happen in your life, but I do know this. Christ died so that no matter what happens in your life, you'll live with Him for eternity. That's why we preach Christ and Him crucified. I'm going to pray for us. The band's going to come forward and continue to lead us in worship. And as they do, I just, I'm going to be right here. And if you want to talk, 
you want to engage in some of these conversations about faith and about theology, I'm here. I want to walk with you through those discussions. And look, if you're in here today and you're like, man, I just, I need to wrestle with these gospels. I need to wrestle with prosperity, Christian nationalism, the gospel itself. I need to wrestle with all these things. Man, we want you to be able to wrestle with them. You look, my, my, I've, I've, I've told people this before. My, my office is filled with books. Half of them are probably books that aren't accurate. Half of them are probably books that are accurate. Sometimes people are like, wow, in the world would you read that? Because I want to know how to preach truth when somebody else is given false truth. We got to know both sides. We got to understand what the false gospel is to be able to understand what the gospel is. We read widely to understand what is deception so that we can preach truth in the midst of deception. So if you're here today and you proclaim Christ and Him crucified, I hope you will study who Christ is and why He's been crucified for you. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to understand your word more clearly? Would you help us to stand up? Would you give us bold pastors? are willing to preach your truth? Would you give us bold deacons and leaders within this church that are able to stand up and stand firm? Not slandering, but loving. Not deceiving, but being pure in thought. And God, I pray that everything we do in this church will be for the purpose of restoration. For those who are caught in sin and for those who are caught in false gospels, I pray, God, that you would restore them. Restore them to your truth, to your word, to your son, Jesus Christ. Father, start with me. God, I'm in desperate need of your sanctification, your salvation, and your continued strength to endure in this world. And I pray, Father, that as you strengthen the pastors, the elders of this church, God, that you would continue to use us to protect this church from the evil one. Strengthen us and embolden us that we might not fail, and this church may too not be conceived uh, as the deceptive... uh, immoral, hating, failing, lying church that the world wants to publicize it says. God, would you raise up warriors who link together to fight the battle, the spiritual one that we face. We love you in your son's name. Amen.
Amen, church. Well, remember, next week is the last week to return your shoe boxes for Chris, operating Chris, Operation Christmas Child. Uh, so take a shoe box as you leave, return it by next Sunday uh, so we can get those shipped across the world for Christmas. Again, thank you for being here. Remember, you're sitting in the midst of darkness to light it up. You have any questions about the sermon or would like to know more about following after Jesus, uh, please contact us and we would love to talk more about your relationship with Christ and how you can grow in your spiritual journey.